Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel, broadcasting remotely today. Now, gathering in common spaces is dangerous these days as public health officials continue to stress social distancing to slow the spread of COVID-19. But staying away from others can be hard during times of anxiety. Leaning on your faith is one way to cope, but this pandemic means people in faith communities cannot gather like they're used to. Starting next weekend, millions of Americans will mark Easter and Passover, and Muslims will start observing Ramadan in a few weeks. How will religious practices be altered because of the coronavirus shutdowns? Today, where we live, we talk with Connecticut religious leaders about how they're adapting, and we want to hear from you. Is your church holding worship services online via Zoom or Facebook Live? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at Where We Live. My first guest is joining us via Zoom today. Tamsin Jones is Associate Professor for Religious Studies at Trinity College in Hartford. Tamsin, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. As I mentioned earlier, uh, many public spaces, social gathering spaces have closed because of COVID-19. That includes churches, synagogues, mosques that have closed temporarily. When we think about this pandemic, how historic is this moment for faith communities? Um, I think it's unprecedented. That's the word that we're hearing uh, used in lots of different contexts, but it, it pertains to religious groups as well. Um, but I think that it, the sort of definition of religion, if, if nothing else, the way it functions is religions are networks of connection and support. So in many ways, um, despite being unable to meet together in person, there are lots of ways in which uh, different religious traditions are particularly well suited to um, sort of confronting and facing um, this unprecedented challenge. We're focusing on places of worship here in Connecticut, but before coronavirus spread around our country, we saw what happened in places like Italy. How did places of worship shift and adapt uh, because this disease was spreading so rapidly there? It, well, in, in as we saw, you know, one of the first things in Italy, it was really striking when they, when they closed the churches there, obviously, um, Catholicism is a huge part of the culture of Italy. Um, so, we the closing of those churches had had a massive social social impact as well. Um, but I think places are adapting all over in the same way we're adapting to work. Uh, they're turning to uh, online networks um, to do things like live stream worship services, send out daily prayers or meditations. Um, trying to find ways to connect people online in small groups to still participate in in the religious traditions that they follow. You're talking about uh, virtual worship. So we hear about uh, churches and other places that are 
are hosting Zoom conferencing or maybe using Facebook Live. But this sounds to be, it, it appears that it would be challenging for certain parts of the population about uh, the elderly, uh, many of them who may rely on their faith. It's not as easy as saying, well, let's just switch to a, to a Zoom call and we can still stay connected. You're absolutely right. And I think that's why I'm also hearing um, stories of, of different communities doing old-fashioned phone trees where, you know, they have a network already built in. So people are organizing themselves to volunteer to make sure that everybody receives a call just to check in on them um, to see, are you okay? Do you have what you need? We're here. Do you just want a five-minute phone conversation. Um, that's the way of supporting one another outside of, you know, um, an online liturgical service. But I think there's also a way in which um, liturgical traditions, you, there's a way of connecting folks with one another outside of being online. Um, and that is these liturgical traditions, when you're praying certain communal prayers or singing certain hymns or songs, that's always been about uh, connecting people across space and time. You can be doing that on your own with a prayer book or with a, a hymnal um, or, or meditating uh, a certain chant that, that is familiar to you. That's always been about bringing people together in a way that transcends a specific uh, geographical location. So there are ways of bridging these distances um, that I think is accessible to many people. You're hearing Tamsin Jones, Associate Professor for Religious Studies at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, as we talk about how places of worship are adapting to this era, this pandemic uh, that our country and many other places uh, have experienced or are experiencing. You can join our conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Nancy's calling from Brantford. Nancy, are you there? Nancy, can you hear us? Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Go ahead. Oh, so I wanted to say that um, I have a friend who is a minister at Plantsville. He is the minister at Plantsville Congregational Church. And if you go on their Facebook every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, he, he delivers a fabulous service. I have friends who are all over the country. A lot of them are older. And I've recommended this. And they've called me back in tears telling me that he really touched them, and he does a fabulous job. So it's, it's um, his name is Pastor Paul Goodman, and I'm Jewish, and I listen to this, and I get more out of this than I've gotten out of anything else. Mm. Well, Nancy, thank you for your call. Uh, we also want to hear from you if you're thinking about how uh, traditional uh, religious practices that you have been able to do that have now had to shift because of coronavirus. The number again, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Tamsin, how do you respond to what Nancy said about uh, these live Facebook uh, that broadcasts that are really helping people? I I. I... I agree. I think I've heard lots of different stories about that. And um, it's in, in a strange way enabling people to uh, reach out in just as that uh, caller described in two communities that they may not normally be connected to. Um, 
so that's that's an interesting um, positive is is people really are getting fed and nourished in from multiple uh, different communities and in different directions. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's interesting. I was in preparation for this. I was thinking about the you know the meaning of 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 the buildings that that folks mm-hmm. gather in and the you know the word for, uh, synagogue comes from the Greek um, to bring together. Uh, ecclesia, the word for church, also comes from a Greek meaning to call from out of the world or to gather people together, um, calling them out of the world. But what though both of those words mean to me is something beyond a building. It really is about connection. Um, and those connections can happen in all sorts of different ways beyond just gathering together in a single building. When we think about places of worship as a place for people of different faiths to gather, as you mentioned, but we know that places of worship are also uh, strong lifelines to the community for support. They can be meeting places for people. Um, and I'm just curious if you can talk about how we've seen that have to change as well. It it, it absolutely has. It's had to adapt. Um, for instance, a lot of religious organizations run food services for, for folks that are experiencing food or or housing insecurity and um i've heard many instances where those those programs are continuing but they've had to adapt by becoming sort of takeout services or curbside meal services um and the other uh these buildings are often usually hospitable welcoming places for 12-step programs Mm -hmm. and uh that too has had to adapt either by meeting online if and when that's possible, or by um, s- decreasing the size of the 12-step of the gathering so that it, it, you know, people can gather together safely in, in under, you know, with a maximum of 10 people in a larger space so that they're, you know, um, six feet apart from one another. So there has, I think those programs are continuing. I've heard, for instance, that one group in a church um, that used to knit, knit prayer shawls um, for, for people, uh, for people having babies or or getting baptized or whatever are now gathering together instead of knitting prayer shawls, they're sewing um, masks. Mm. So it's, it's the same, but different. Um, and, and all of this, again, religious organizations are organized for service and support within internally, but also with this external focus, they've often been sites of charitable giving in the, in their communities. So when people who aren't connected to a religious tradition are looking for opportunities to volunteer opportunities to serve, they're, they're, they're turning to the religious organizations in order to sort of help guide them, show them how they can serve their community right now. You're listening to Where We Live again uh, with us via Zoom, Tamsin Jones, Associate Professor for Religious Studies at Trinity College in Hartford. Uh, We know social distancing is important to slow the spread of coronavirus, but today we talk about how faith communities are dealing with all of this. Uh, We know most faiths gather together to pray and connect with one another. How is your church, your synagogue, your mosque operating during this pandemic? You can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter 
Twitter, at Where We Live. Uh, joining us on the phone right now is Rabbi Deborah Cantor. She's rabbi of the B'nai Tikva Shalom Synagogue in Bloomfield, Connecticut. Rabbi Cantor, welcome back to our show. Thank you. Delighted to be here. Uh, you are a faith leader uh, in this recent time. How has how has it been for you, not only as a rabbi of a synagogue, but as a community member? It's a um, well. You can imagine that it's a very busy and confusing um, time. It is for all of us, but particularly for for rabbis, for clergy of all faiths, we've gone. Almost overnight, I would say within a matter of um, one, two, three days, we've gone from a um, being in a high touch, um, uh, a high touch uh, job to something that's virtual. So I've been a rabbi for over thirty years, and I my job consists largely of being with people, you know, being at bedsides, visiting people, um, meeting with people in my office where they are, uh, being in meetings with people in person. Uh, of course, I do, I do a lot of work by phone, and I'm on my computer normally, but so much of my work has to do with counseling individuals, with being with people in meetings and gatherings and so forth. It's high touch, you know, mm -hmm. literally and figuratively. Uh, I'm hugging people, I'm shaking their hands. Um, and j before this happened, I actually was reading a book that had been recommended to me uh, by a number of colleagues, uh, a number of clergy colleagues called The Art of Gathering. Um, I don't know if you've heard of it by Priya Parker, and I thought, and, and it was recommended to me, people said, oh, you'll get a great sermon out of this. It's about the importance of gathering in person, and uh, this woman has nothing to do with, with religion, and this, this woman wrote this book, and it's just, it's just a lovely book about how when we gather, even if it's for a dinner party, you know, the importance of gathering in person and being, mm -hmm. being mindful about it, and, uh, the, you know, anyway, <laughs> I was in the middle of reading this book, and then the world, the world turned upside down, and mm -hmm. I've been thinking about it ever since, and I stopped reading it, uh, because all of a sudden... I had to figure out how to do my how how my role had shifted. I had to figure out, you know, how do how do I use Zoom? Mm -hmm. You know, not not I've been on I've been on Zoom conferences and uh, webinars for a couple years now, but I've never run one. Mm -hmm. And how do I lead a service where nobody is in the room with me? And how do I set that up? And how do I now do meetings and communicate with uh, congregants when I can't, I can't be in the room with them. How do I comfort mourners? How do I speak to people who are worried about their loved ones who are ill? You know, how do I do all those things? How, how, how do I transform the way that I, nor I normally function um, almost overnight? Yeah. And so... 
the, at the beginning, there at the beginning, within in within a f- the first few days, it was a matter of a very daunting skill building kind of uh, challenge. How do we Rabbi, do this? How do we do that? Yeah. Rabbi Cantor, um, you're talking about ways that you're having to adapt um, right. from the time that you've right. been a rabbi for more than 30 years. But as far as your congregants go, how have they adapted to this? So everybody is in their own little home or apartment, and they cannot um, come to come to the synagogue. They cannot um, join with their children, their grandchildren, their friends. They, I have a lot of older folks in my congregation, and they're wondering how to connect. So they don't have the kinds of comfort and reassurance that they normally could turn to. Many of them do not have access to some of the tools that the synagogue is offering, you know. So as I am trying to build my capacity to use Zoom and to put on our services and our um, our meetings and our um, uh, various classes and so, and so forth on Zoom, they don't have computers mm-hmm. or smartphones. And so that's been, uh, that's been, in other words, somewhat useful for some of our congregants, but not at all useful for others. And mm-hmm. so we've also... Also, most of the things that we're trying to offer, we are also um, making available for people to connect with, even using landlines. But we have to let people know you can also dial in to these things. And we're so we're calling people. We're making use of, um, as the professor said, phone trees, old-fashioned uh, means of things. We're trying to send notes and cards to people um, using, you know, anything that we can. We don't want people to go out. Um, lots of lots of people in our congregation shouldn't be going out. I had one wonderful uh, congregant who comes every week to the synagogue uh, on the Sabbath uh, in her 90s, and when I called her, uh, and uh, asked her who was doing errands for her. She said, oh, Rabbi, I just went to three stores looking for toilet paper. And I, of course, was aghast um, and sent and sent somebody to her doorstep with toilet paper from the synagogue. Um, yeah. But, you know, we're also worried about, we're worried about a whole variety of needs that people have. Some of those are social, um, emotional and uh, spiritual needs, but also very practical needs. I don't want people going out, yeah. you know. So the synagogue also hired uh, some unemployed uh, young people in their 20s to go do errands for people. I mean, I'm paying them to do, I'm paying them out of my discretionary fund. I'm happy to do that just to do, just so they can do errands for people. I just don't want folks going out. That's just a practical mm-hmm. measure. 
You're hearing uh, Rabbi Deborah okay. Cantor, uh, Rabbi Deborah Cantor, who is the leader, religious leader of the B'nai Tikva Shalom Synagogue in Bloomfield, Connecticut. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanshu. We're going to continue talking again about how uh, religious traditions, uh, places of worship have had to shift because of coronavirus. I want to thank Tamsin Jones for joining us, Associate Professor for Religion at Trinity College in Hartford. And after the break, we're going to hear from the Imam of the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford. And we want to hear from you. Again, we want to hear about how your practices have changed, how your faith community is thinking about connecting in this era of social distancing. Here's the number to join us, 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Social distancing is important to slow the spread of coronavirus, but today we talk about how faith communities are dealing with all of this. Most faiths gather together to pray and connect. How's your church, your synagogue, your mosque operating during the pandemic? We want to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. It looks like Todd is calling from Madison. Todd, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, tell um, us, Todd, I, I, a little bit about yourself. I, I'm the, uh, the senior minister at the First Congregational Church in Madison, and I, I was just listening to the rabbi, um, I think, reflected uh, the experience of religious leaders kind of all over the country right now. Uh, that's where we find ourselves. Um, I, I think the one thing that, that, I, that, that, that struck, our, struck me during our experience with this was, the, was how fast it happened. Right? We went from sort of a normal Sunday and then a week later, we were doing Facebook Live. And I think that was sort of a jarring experience for a lot of our parishioners, um, especially those who are older who maybe don't have the same facility with, um, with technology that, that younger parishioners do. And, and I worry about the spiritual cost of that, because I think on one hand, people can certainly say um, they can acknowledge the reality of social distancing and the need to do that. Uh, but on another level, on an emotional or spiritual level, um, there's a great sense of loss and grief that, that occasions that, right? That um, it's not the same to worship on your computer screen in your living room uh, as it is to worship with 200 people on a Sunday morning. It's simply, it's simply a different experience. And, and I worry a little bit about the cost of that, you know, kind of long term. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that, that, that strikes me is that we have... Um, you know, it, it, regardless of what religion you're a part of, you know, our job is to help people interpret the times. And it's been frustrating over the, over the past few weeks um, to try and do that when the ground continually seems to be shifting and there does not seem to be a coherent message out there about uh, the length of duration of this. And I, that's, that's been a, like a personal frustration. But I think the larger one is, is the spiritual cost of not being able to gather in person. Well, thank you, Todd, uh, for calling in to Where We Live. You can, too, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at Where We Live. Uh, Valentine's calling from Hartford. Valentine, go ahead. Oh, hello. Um, I'm calling with a somewhat unusual experience. I attend a Quaker meeting in West Hartford, and so you might think, what's the point of everybody dialing up to be silent? (laughs) But, in fact... I'm finding it a a very helpful way of keeping the community as a community. Mm-hmm. And in a Quaker meeting, it's not really totally silent. Usually two or three people will give what we call a message at some point during the hour. 
And so I'm, instead of looking around me at a room full of people, I'm looking at a screen with 25 on it, which is all it will fit, and there'll be maybe some more on the next screen, all sitting quietly. And so I, I really feel it's a very helpful way of keeping the community together. Mm. There's something to be said for seeing uh, faces that you know and care about in front of you, even if you can't be near them physically. Right. Well, we appreciate you calling in to tell us a little bit about your experience. I wanted to bring into the conversation now Imam Rafai Erfin from the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford in Berlin, Connecticut. Uh, Imam Rafai, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for coming on to the show. We actually spoke with you about a year ago, talking about the month of Ramadan. Uh, as a leader of uh, a mosque here uh, in Connecticut, how have you had to shift your practices and how you connect with your members? So my experience has been very similar to Rabbi Cantor. Um, we've had to shift essentially overnight all of our services uh, from in-person assemblies to basically virtual gatherings. Uh, we've conducted our services over Facebook Live. We've had classes over Zoom. We've had conference calls. Um, and we've circulated announcements through WhatsApp in order to just inform the entire community that nothing has been canceled. We're still open for business um, and uh, that we want the community to stay connected. Um, however, I also approach this from the perspective of the parishioner of the congregant. Um, and what we've tried to do is to emphasize that even though there's this feeling of loss um, and there's this feeling of nostalgia that we miss being there physically, that the, the role of the mosque has not shifted and that you can be present, you can be uh, involved in in the activities and in your spiritual life without physically being in the mosque. Hmm. Is that challenging, though, for some of your members when we think about um, specific traditions or practices in particular faiths? Uh, like uh, I, w I was raised Catholic, and so taking communion uh, every week. Um, if you're a Muslim, you know, praying five times a day, uh, having Friday prayer, but not being able to be near uh, each other. How has that been challenging? It has absolutely been challenging, but I would argue that it's been actually very useful and productive. Mm -hmm. And and the reason I say that is because we're so accustomed to a large gathering for the Friday service. We're accustomed to having that luxury and that privilege of being able to stop by the mosque for any of those five prayers. However, one of the core beliefs in Islam is the idea that one can intimately worship God without an intermediary, without having to worship in a, in a specific space, in a specific place, in a specific time. And many times that uh, concept escapes us because we're used to being spiritual when we're being told that, okay, this is a specific time or a specific place to be spiritual. And now, which is, I would say, is an hour of need, an hour of, uh, in which we're reminded of our constant need to connect with God and to be present in our worship, it's a great reminder for individuals that, um, that the mosque is not necessary 
and it might be ironic, it might be strange to hear me say that, but the mosque is not necessary in order to worship God, that in fact, God is present everywhere that we are. Mm. Uh, also with us again uh, by phone is Rabbi Deborah Cantor, who's Rabbi the B'nai Tikva Shalom Synagogue in Bloomfield. Uh, Rabbi Cantor, with Passover coming, again, this is a, relig- a Jewish holiday, uh, you know, observed in Jewish homes, but how are you providing advice and guidance on how uh, to even have Seder? Oh, I, before I answer that, of course, that is a huge, hugely on my mind. I just wanted to react to something that Imam Rafai said, um, this this notion that um, the place, of the importance of the place, and uh, the beautiful mosque uh, where in Berlin, I'm thinking about, I was, um, I watched that mosque being built, um, and the importance of place. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in Hebrew, the, the, the word for place, makom, also can be used as a word for God. And, of course, the, the importance of holy space, but holy space is also where God is, which, which can be anywhere. So we have both of those ideas, that there's holy space and holy place, uh, but that's not necessarily only in what we, what we think of as holy spaces that we build. Um, so there's that sort of, that, that idea that... Um, Wherever you invoke God, wherever you feel God's presence, that is a holy space. And that space might be, it might be in our dining room, you know. In any case, Passover is next week. (laughs) Oh, I'm so aware of that. And (laughs) Passover is the Jewish holiday. People, People might think that the most observed Jewish holiday is, say, in the fall when we have that whole season of fall holidays with Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the Jewish New Year, but the most, by far the most observed Jewish holiday of the whole year is the Passover Seder, and it is a home-based Jewish holiday. Um, We have services in the synagogue uh, and all of that, but it's really, the focus is on this huge dinner with friends and family um, observed by um, many people uh, for two nights, two seders, but um, uh, in any case, these huge, uh, 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 important, um, symbolic uh, meals where we sit and sometimes for hours at a time, uh, we talk about the the story of the going out from slavery to freedom. We tell that story. It's intergenerational. You got to be there. You know, <laughs> you got to be there to be. You got to be in it. And people come from far and wide. In my extended family, this is something that uh, my kids and their cousins look forward to all year. They're all young adults now, and they come in from far and wide, and they honestly look forward to it all year. And I said to my brother and and sister uh, last year, I said, wow, this is so precious. You know, a few years from now, who knows if we're going to have this huge gather- gathering of all the cousins. You know, they're all going to get married and go and have their own households. And and my brother said to me, I know, I know how precious it, precious it is that there's all the all the cousins are around this table singing, 
and this year that's not going to happen. So there's a sense of, oh, my gosh, how are we going to have Seder? You know, we're all in our little homes, two of us, three of us. People are alone in their homes. How do we do it? And there's so much preparation for Passover with special foods and cooking, and matzah is just the beginning of it. So we're helping people figure out how to do Passover. Some people are going to do Zoom seders. For traditional Jews, we don't use electronics. We refrain from using electronics on Sabbath and holidays. We take a break from that. So that's been a barrier that we've had to deal with. Do we use electronics, since that's what we've traditionally taken a break from on Sabbath and holidays? Okay, so if we decide we're going to use a tool like Zoom, how do we do it? And how, again, this is not something that um, older folks are necessarily in a position to use. How do you do a Seder if you're the only person in in the house? How do you get the things you need? to do a Seder? How do you prepare your house? That's a huge undertaking, and people don't necessarily have the energy, the means to do it. They don't have people to come in and help them mm-hmm. uh, do that. They might hire extra help uh, to come in and ready their homes uh, for Passover. Um, how do they get in the spirit? It's a joyous holiday. How do you get yourself in the spirit? And one of the things that I've I've tried to remind people is that we Jews have been around for a long time, and we have celebrated Passover under far more dire circumstances during our long history than now. And we can do it again. The first Passover, the one that's described in the book of Exodus, the first Passover was observed by the Israelites while they were still enslaved in Egypt on the eve of their departure from Egypt, and they didn't know what the, what the future held. They observed that first Passover, eating pieces of roasted lamb wrapped in uh, matzah, the sort of hastily be- baked uh, kind of pizza bread, the unleavened pizza bread, wrapped with bitter herbs, and they... And they uh, they had their sandals on and their and their robes on and, and their and their their loins girded as the text says and the and their traveling staffs in their hand ready to depart and they were terrified they didn't know what the future would hold and they were ready to leave and they had faith and that was the first seder and they were told that you're gonna you're gonna be free you're gonna mm-hmm. get out of this. You're going to be free, and people, your descendants will tell this story forever. They're going to tell the story of your becoming free, of your getting out of slavery. They're going to tell this story forever. And that's you're it. Hearing, you're hearing Rabbi Deborah Cantor, Rabbi the B'nai Tikva Shalom Synagogue in Bloomfield. Again, uh, with us also by phone, Imam Rafai Erfin from the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford in Berlin, Connecticut. We're checking in with uh, some religious leaders on the show today to talk about uh, with the pandemic, how tradition and places of worship have had to shift. You can join us too, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Kim's calling from West Hartford. Kim, go ahead. Thank you. Um, thank you for having this conversation, first of all, Lucy. And I want to 
kind of circle back to what the imam said um, just prior to um, the conversation about Passover, um, which is kind of God is where you are. So coincidentally, I started a prayer and devotional group with um, nine other women um, in observance of Lent, and we started it back on the day after um, Ash Wednesday, so before COVID and coronavirus um, really hit the the country at, at least. So we started this um, morning devotional. We get up at 7 o'clock and we read a devotional from the Bible and we pray and we ask for prayer requests and we post, you know, the devotional and, and um, we connect with each other throughout the day. It was initially a way of kind of getting away from social media. So we wanted to fill our conversation, our chat with things that were very positive. So this is something that we started, again, in observance of Lent, and only, you know, a week or two ago did we realize just how um, amazing um, it was for God to bring us together in this way, because we've relied on each other and this morning devotional in a way that we never would have imagined that we'd have to. So, you know, again, the Church is a very important part of my life, but being able to observe God, to see God, to invite God into my life, even outside of an establishment, outside of the four walls of a, of a church building, is just so important, especially in this time. So thank you. Well, thank you, Kim, uh, for letting us know how you're connecting uh, with uh, your friends and getting support again, not having to be at a, a physical building uh, to get that kind of support. I wanted to go back to Imam Rafai Erfin from the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford in Berlin, Connecticut. Imam, did you want to respond to what Kim was talking about? Absolutely. You know, I think it's such a blessing what Kim described, um, especially for, for a group of people to come together organically in that way and to worship God collectively um, and and individually at the simultaneously. It's, it's different from hearing a lecture or hearing a sermon in which one is just being a recipient um, and being passive. I think that kind of worship in, in which a person is active um, and engaged intellectually, spiritually, um, and and just in in a mode of of inflection and reflection, um, I think that's exactly what what we should be reminding each other can happen in a time of crisis like we're undergoing right now. Um, that's the message that we've been sending to our community. Uh, I've posted several uh, sample prayers that individuals can say. Um, just to just to connect with God in a time of uh, in which our, we we have a heightened realization of our dependency on God, um, that our existence is contingent, and that we are in complete and utter need of 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 His assistance. Um, and and that that takes a lot of vulnerability, and that takes a person to dig really deep into his or her soul. And, and to realize that we're not in control of our circumstances, and we never truly were. Um, and and, and in, in an ordinary circumstance in which we're very healthy and wealthy and very privileged, um, ironically, that makes us feel uh, independent of any need. It makes us feel independent of God's reach. Um, and now that we're in a state of vulnerability in which we feel like our loved ones, uh, people that we know, are getting infected and getting hurt, um, rather than being frustrated with what's happening, we're inviting our community to be in an open conversation, in an open dialogue with God, 
and that has two parts. Part of it is learning. Part of it is listening um, to revelation, listening to scripture. But there's a second component that is often forgotten, which is the importance of individual prayer. Um, and I think that that applies in every single faith mm-hmm. tradition. The idea of the individual opening their heart um, and engaging in this intimate conversation with God, uh, which can happen in the communal setting, but it's often mm-hmm. placed in, in a lower priority to being in that communal space. For example, we have the month of Ramadan coming up, uh, and we're so used to having these communal prayers in which we have these large gatherings, the iftar, breaking of fast, um, and yes, we're all praying. However, there's so much emphasis on being together, which is so valuable and so wonderful and so uplifting, that sometimes that personal development takes a back backseat. You mentioned Ramadan. Again, this is a whole month of observance uh, by Muslims around the world. It will be challenging uh, to have Ramadan this year because of social distancing. So how are you going to do it, Imam? It's extremely challenging, and I'm already getting inundated with messages of people <laughs> literally freaking out. <laughs> like, how are you going to do this? And, and sometimes the messages are not that friendly. They're like, what are you going to do? <laughs> and, and um, you know, we're trying our best. Uh, what we plan on doing is to have the services broadcast every evening through the Internet, both on Facebook as well as Zoom. Uh, what we also want to do is to invite the community to also ask questions. So we're going to have some Q&As. We're going to have some classes, um, short thoughts and reflection pieces that we're going to circulate through the month of Ramadan. What we've also encouraged our community to do is to check in on one another and to make sure that everybody's doing well, that if there's anything that they need, um, that they help each other. And then probably the last component that we're emphasizing is the importance of charitable works. Um, There's a group in our mosque that's uh, sewing masks. Um, There's also uh, another group that's working on uh, refilling food pantries and also providing uh, packaged food for the shelter uh, in, in Hartford. And so there are various different charitable projects that, that we're working on as well. You're hearing Imam Rafai Erfin from the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford in Berlin. Also with us is Rabbi Deborah Cantor. Uh, when we come back from the break, and she is the leader of the B'nai Tikva Shalom Synagogue in Bloomfield. When we come back from the break here on Where We Live, I'm Lucy Nalpathanshal. We're going to hear from a cloistered nun in Connecticut about her life devoted to prayer. As the rest of us are struggling with the spread of the coronavirus, so what can we learn from her? You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to air a second call-in special from the New England News Collaborative. We hosted one last week focused on online education in New, Ling- New England. Tomorrow, they'll be focusing on New England health care workers on the front lines. And we hope to hear from you as well as voices from around our region. That's tomorrow at 9 a.m. Now, today we've been talking about how religious communities, faith communities are handling this pandemic 
pandemic. And uh, with us, we've been talking with two Connecticut religious leaders, but we wanted to get a different perspective. Uh, we wanted to hear from a member of a religious order. Her name is Sister Maria of the Angels. She lives in Guilford, Connecticut with the Dominican Monastery of Our Lady of Grace. Sister Maria, welcome to our show. Thank you, Lucy. It's a joy to be here. It's so tell us a little for me to listening in and hearing the different perspectives. Well, thank you for joining us today. I mentioned that you're a cloistered nun. So describe for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with the Dominican Monastery of Our Lady of Grace, how you live. Okay, uh, Cloister comes from the Latin word claustrum, which means enclosed space. So being cloistered means that we live within an enclosed space of our monastic buildings and our property. And we follow really the strictest form of cloister that uh, St. Dominic, who founded the Dominican nuns 800 years ago, wanted. And so that means that our contacts with the outside world are kept to a minimum. And so we go out and have as little contact as possible with the outside world. And the people that come in are also limited, and we have some employees that help us. So we are kind of in a very unusual perspective in that we are living um, the uh, form of isolation mm-hmm. that's being required of everyone non-voluntarily. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do that in order really to be available to God. And we're separated from the world out of love for the world and are united mm-hmm. with the world on a deeper level. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're very aware of the suffering mm-hmm. of people all over the world. Uh, Sister Maria, what advice do you have uh, for uh, many of us, as you mentioned, because of the event of the pandemic, we are now uh, staying close to home, we're limiting our contact with others. This is a very trying time. Uh, what would you say to people listening? I think the, the bottom line is to trust in God. I'm very impressed with the imam's comments about recognizing our contingency and our dependence on God. And so this experience has sure, certainly shown all of us that we're not in control, and that sort of a recognition that has probably hit everyone very hard overnight, as the rabbi was saying. And so to take it as an opportunity to... to really surrender the fact that we're not in control, that God is in control, that he created us, is holding us in existence. The imam talked about the um, the contingency, excuse me, of our existence. and But to believe that that God who created us and is holding us in existence is good and is only light and there's no shadow of darkness in God and that God will bring good out of this. Mm-hmm. And that to think of it as an opportunity for that intimate worship of God that the Imam was speaking of. Mm-hmm. We can do that by believing in God and hoping in God and trying to love God and the people that we live with so closely. You're hearing Sister Maria of the Angels. She's from the Dominican Monastery of Our Lady of Grace in Guilford, Connecticut. She is a cloistered nun. Uh, before we run out of time, I wanted to go back quickly to Rabbi Deborah Cantor of the B'nai Tikva Shalom Synagogue in Bloomfield. Rabbi, we just have two minutes left, but something that many of us are probably feeling is a form of grief. Uh, what would you say to listeners who are struggling at this time? I think it's important to acknowledge uh, how it is that we're feeling, and some there there is grief, there is loss um, for all of us. For some of us, there will be profound loss, um, and I think um, to acknowledge every day 
what it is that we're feeling, what it is that we've lost, and to be able to say it's okay uh, for me to feel a sense of grief, even if there are other people who have had great, who are having experiencing greater losses, and to be able to acknowledge that and to use that moment uh, to pray. To um, there's a beautiful poem uh, by the poet Yehuda Amichai, uh, in which he begins by saying. Solitary prayer always takes two. Um, solitary prayer always takes two. That there's always another, when you pray alone, that it always assumes that God is there. Um, however you think of God, um, that uh, there's a certain kind of um, acknowledging to oneself, to God, um, that whatever you're feeling, uh, whatever that sense of loss and grief is, that it's also okay um, to sometimes feel joy in this mm. difficult time. Mm. Um, and um, to be able to be kind to yourself, mm. kinder to yourself, kinder to others, uh, to be able to give during this time, um, I think to be able to live our lives in a simpler way during this difficult time, um, to acknowledge our humility, to acknowledge we're not in charge of the world. That's an acknowledgement that I hope after this is over that we can take forward into our lives after this. Well, thank you, Rabbi Cantor, for those closing words uh, here on Where We Live. I also want to thank Imam Rafai Arafin for joining us from the Islamic Association of Greater Hartford in Berlin, Connecticut. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.